Welcome to our new edition to the uh, Biz News Radio lineup, uh, SLR's Political Lens. Well, Simon Lincoln Reader is based in London, but he watches the politics in his homeland of South Africa, also in the UK and in the United States. Three areas which influence our lives nowadays in a far greater way than they ever did in the past. Simon, good to have you on the show, and uh, we're looking forward to having a, uh, an ongoing, a regular discussion on what's going on in politics around the world. Maybe we should kick off with the United States and Donald Trump. He is the guy who makes the most news headlines. He's got a, as of today, Thursday the 3rd of January, he's got a different world that he needs to approach. Uh, he does have a different world, and his world for the last few weeks has is certainly t- turning into that. Um, he has lost control of the House. He has suffered an impasse in the form of a partial shutdown. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the next few weeks pan out, particularly starting today with the reconvening uh, of the of Congress. What does that mean, lost control of the House? Well, in the elections, he, uh, did, he didn't get a majority. He, he retained control of the Senate, but his, the, the Democrats took control of the of, of, the, of the House. So when you say Nancy he, Pelosi, you're talking about uh, the Republicans, in other words. The Republicans. Trump's, Trump's group. They, so yes. in the past, they had the Senate and the House and the, and the White House where he sits. Uh, that's not the case anymore. It, it ordinarily happens like that, Alec. At midterm elections, there is, if you look at the history, a swing. Um, and it's happened during Obama's um, administration. But Nancy Pelosi comes into the House as Speaker today in a very powerful position, and we know her position on uh, certain aspects of Trump's policy, such as border security. What's that all about? We just hear, being on the outside, about the wall. So is he physically going to build a big, fat wall between the United States and Mexico? As John Kelly reluctantly admitted uh, last week, we don't think it's a wall. Uh, We have this image of this razor wire extension um, encompassing the entire length of the border, it's probably not going to be that. It's just not uh, feasible, and it won't receive the support that it needs. So Mexicans have been able to get into the United States pretty easily, or in future it'll be less easy for them. Is that what this is all about? He wants to make it less easy. It's not just Mexicans. It's Hondurans. It's uh, Central uh, Latin America um, yeah, it's 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 a pretty sordid state of affairs, and quite frankly, uh, you know, it was one of the reasons why he was elected. So he is stuck in a bit of an awkward position. If he doesn't emphasise it, he will be accused of reneging on his election promises. Is this a whole new thing? Has uh, has there been talk of a similar border uh, defence mechanism in the past? It's always been a, a fault line. But if you look back to Bill Clinton and and certainly Barack Obama, they were emphatic at certain points during their administrations that border control needs to be tightened. Um, That is freely available. You can see it on the records on the Internet. They have both Clinton and Obama were adamant at certain points that there need to be stricter controls. So Trump is just doing it, but he might be doing it in a, a clumsy manner a clumsy and hostile manner, which people certainly are, you know, in the light of his other indiscretions or alleged indiscretions, they take them as one. So, the, you know, you, you, you see the, the animosity toward this through that. 
So the United States will be very interesting indeed. Donald Trump versus the Democrats. In the UK, though, it's a lot more confusing. <laughs> it is very confusing. I mean, I don't know. So, uh, I'm not sure if you've been following, but uh, the Home Secretary, uh, Sajid Javid, returned from the Kruger National Park to uh, deal with another border security issue, this time facing the UK in dinghies that were crossing the channel. Have you been following that? I have. I think the last count, there was something like 200 people who got into these little boats <laughs> and tried to get over uh, from France and were arrested. We wonder how many got through, <laughs> uh, through the border patrols. The question he's asking, and it is a legitimate question, is why are people not stopping at the first safe country? Why are they coming via the channel? Um, and, you know, it, it is a leg legitimate question, but there has also been a lot of hostility toward him. He has been in the last few weeks uh, perceived as demonstrating some leadership ambitions. Um, and I think that could have something to do with it as well. So he was holidaying in the Kruger Park, uh, then had to come back to the UK because some guys from... Afghanistan, North Africa, mainly Muslim countries have been sneaking or trying to sneak into the UK, and it's a little bit of a crisis, I think he's called it. Is it? Not in terms of the numbers. If you look at the, uh, the, the consequences of the Syrian um, civil war and the numbers that, um, that entered Europe post that or and during that, uh, 200 people is completely um, is insignificant. But I think it's because we're also in a hugely... Um, uh, in a highly flammable atmosphere regarding uh, immigration, particularly in the context of Brexit. And I think that that has given it this additional emphasis. See, the context of Brexit, 29th of March is the big day. What, what's going to happen then? Well, I think, Alec, we are going to, Britain is certainly going to leave the European Union in one way or another in 2019. Whether it's the way that leavers, um, you know, the hardened leavers think it, it, it should be done with no deal or whether it will be a, a last minute uh, concessions from Brussels secured by Theresa May is another. Those are the two uh, options that I think are, are, are probably uh, the most um, uh, explanatory on, on, on exactly what me mechanism Britain withdraws upon. What about the second referendum? I see there was uh, commentary in the last few days that 75% of Labour Party MPs are in favour of having a second referendum, whereas their leader is not. Yeah, this is an interesting point. Um, you know, I've, I've always seen Jeremy Corbyn as a, a, a very discreet but, but no less hard lever. He, he doesn't want anything to do with the European Union because, you know, if, in the event that he becomes prime minister, they will... Uh, intervene on, on many of his reforms that he, he wishes to apply to, to the British government. That puts him at odds with this, uh, with this part in his, with this huge group in his party that, that do want a second referendum. But I think, Alec, you know, we've got to go back a bit here. Is it really a second referendum or is it an elite referendum? Look at the people that are involved in lobbying for it. Are they really concerned with the welfare of the man in the street? Are they really concerned um, that, uh, that this country will be poorer or that they will be less exposed to their um, you know, current comfortable arrangements? I think 
that we've got to think very carefully as to what this people's vote is actually all about. It's headed, don't forget, by Roland Rudd, who is the brother of Amber Rudd. Um, and, and there are all sorts of little cozy relationships within it. I'm very skeptical of this Leavers vote, to be honest. And what happens if they have a second vote and again you get the same result? Well, that's a threat, isn't it? And, and, and quite frankly, there is uh, quite a substantial amount of evidence to suggest that that will be the case. People haven't really changed their attitudes. And I think we, you know, Alec, you know that in London, we live in this little bubble and Westminster, it applies to Westminster. They don't really understand what is going on outside, especially in the north. And for them to come back and say, oh, we think we've got uh, ample numbers now that a certain amount of people who voted to leave have died and all sorts of other interesting uh, components. I still don't think that, uh, that, that Britain would, would, would vote to, to, um, to remain the next time. So what about the state of the two political parties? Theresa May is always being painted in the media as, uh, as weak, as indecisive, as uh, not having her party under control. And certainly the fact that she couldn't get her plan through, well, not yet anyway, suggests uh, that that's a possibility. Let's start there with the Conservatives. Nine years ago, the Conservative Party was like the adult that arrived at a 15-year-old's disco and started dancing wildly around. And, you know, it was entertained at the time because it was, I think, a little bit amusing. But nine years later, the adult wants to smoke dacha too. Now he wants to, I'm chilled, I'm open-minded, you know, remonstrate with the DJ for not playing enough Caribbean music. They have veered significantly off-piste. And you see it in, uh, in Parliament in the, in the extent of the divisions. And I'm afraid it is going to result in some form of punishment, whether it is a general election or whether it is Theresa May uh, leaving the num t uh, number 10 Downing Street in 2000. I think those are the two options. Um, there is still a case for, for, for a general election. And I'm afraid if a general ele election was held, you'd probably find that Jeremy Corbyn would, would, would win. What about his party? Because they've got some pretty off the wall, uh, certainly from a free enterprise or a, a, a promoter of free enterprises uh, perspective, some pretty off the wall ideas. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always suspected that it's not Jeremy Corbyn's labor as much as it is the, the shadow chancellor, John McDonald's labor. Uh, he's the real danger here because he's got the fatal economic ideas um, and he is supported by people who genuinely admire what is going on in countries like Venezuela and what has happened in countries like Cuba. Uh, and that is absolutely a, a huge worry. Now, if you look at the city of London, you'll see that money is already disappearing just because there is a threat that Labour under John McDonnell as Chancellor of the Exchequer will win a general election if it is held. Hmm. Well, I, I'm surprised that anybody could be uh, praising what's going on in Venezuela right now when people are starving and so on. But I guess uh, there's, there's no accounting for all tastes. No, absolutely. Look at Jeremy uh, Corbyn's grassroots movement that uh, propelled him into uh, the leader position uh, in 2015. If you look at Momentum and the key figures that are involved in Momentum, and you look at their Twitter feeds and, and, and the, the uh, essays that they produce, 
you'll see their support for Venezuela. Um, and also, uh, something that we haven't mentioned about the Labour Party is that there is this terrible element within it that is occupied by this anti-Semitic, um, anti-Israel uh, sentiment that is, has been incredibly damaging, um, not just for the Labour Party, but I think to Britain, the community as, as a whole in the last year. Israel is becoming a bit of a flashpoint. I um, was having a look at the detail on uh, Bolsonaro's election or, or inauguration in Brazil last week, the new right-wing president there. Yes. And uh, it's the first visit to Brazil by uh, Israel's president um, Netanyahu in in well, first by any president from Israel in generations. Uh, they also want to move, the Brazilians do, their embassy from Tel Aviv to, to Jerusalem in the same way yes. the Americans have. Can, can we just dwell on that briefly? Why is it such a big deal, uh, the, the movement of the embassy? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, firstly, the, um, until now, Alec, the um, embassy has been in Tel Aviv, um, which has seemed to be placating the concerns of uh, the Palestinians who have claimed to Jerusalem. And by the presence of this important institution in you know, a place they contest, uh, they feel that sides are being taken and that there is no longer an impartial um, arbitration of um, this hostility. And it's now basically the world's powers are on Israel's side and Palestine can go and hang. And that's interesting. We move on to South Africa, which recently has actually announced that it's going to close its embassy in Israel and downgrade it just to a representative office. So I suppose that's, if you like, uh, you've got Brazil and uh, the United States uh, who are on the right. Uh, you'd have maybe the UK, which would have its, its embassy in Tel Aviv in the middle, and South Africa, which is closing it down, uh, moving even more towards the Palestinian side. Uh, am I reading it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, South Africa is a huge supporter of the BDS campaign, whether they say it in public or not. And I'm talking about the ANC and certainly the EFF and other more radical uh, fringes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very uh, touchy subject. Who is right and who is wrong? The South Africans have got into trouble before. If you recall, um, I think there was an ambassador who had attended meetings with Israeli officials that were not sanctioned or not uh, approved by the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Cooperation. That uh, got him into trouble. That happened, I think, uh, last year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there's always been hostility around South Africa's relationship post-liberation uh, uh, relationship with, with Israel. It is something that much more attention is, uh, or one would presume, would be paid to, given that Cyril Maposa is coming to the West and saying he needs $100 billion uh, to get the economy started again. Yeah, as if he didn't have enough problems. It's an, you know, especially in the like, if you have to go to America, it's going to be a very difficult ask. But how do you mend bridges like that? Cyril Ramaphosa is probably the only official I can think of in the ANC uh, government capable of that level of negotiation with uh, a country like Israel, with a country like America. I don't think anyone else can do it, but it remains to be seen how how uh, 
you know, what the future going forward between these two countries. Remember, South Africa has a significant population of, of, of Jewish, um, has a significant Jewish community. Um, so I think all eyes will be on how he, he manages this and, and the fallout from closing the embassy. A significant radical Muslim and growing radical Muslim community as well. So, but, but I guess radicalism is the is the name of the game as South Africa gears up for its own election. Yes, very much so. I have, you know, I, the, uh, something I noticed um, on this Clifton issue um, was that the first respondents to this. Uh, issue of people being asked to leave the beach was a outfit called the Black People's National Crisis Committee. And, uh, you know, you hear a name like that and you think, well, this must be something that Desmond Tutu must be involved in or uh, someone like Mabuso Msiman, you know, respectable. But if you read a bit more, um, more than the reports that News24 have generated, you'll actually see that it's the Black First, Land First Gupta-sponsored militia um, who, who, who got to the scene before anyone else. And subsequently, the issue, which probably could have been contained, exploded and resulted in the slaughtering of a sheep and then people calling each other's names and threatening. You're right. This is very radical stuff. How are you reading that? It, it, it certainly is scaring uh, particularly white South Africans to see this this outpouring of um, of radicalism, which can only get worse, you presume, as, as you head for the election. Yeah, I think, Alec, we have the benefits of critical analysis. And, you know, I, I don't know if you came across a documentary um, entitled Farmlands by a Canadian journalist, right-wing journalist called Lauren Southern. And she has produced um, a, you know, by all appearances, very frightening look at South Africa's farm murders. And in this documentary, she interviewed uh, Zwanele Luana, who is one of the spokespeople for Black First, Land First. And you hear what Zwanele Luana said, and you could be anywhere in the world, and you'll walk away frightened out of your uh, wits, But the fact is that we know that the Guptas sponsor and have sponsored Black First, Land First. So basically they hired guns. And I'm not so sure in the long run how effective these people are. They make threats, sure. They um, jump around. They arrive at scenes like Clifton, Fourth Beach, yes. But as a a real political threat, I'm not sure that they have the, the longevity. Something that nobody is factoring in or don't appear to be factoring in right now is the Afrikaner. Uh, that is still the majority of the white population in South Africa, the people who don't have passports and don't have the ability to leave elsewhere. And it is a, a nation that's proud of its fighting prowess. Uh, you think back to the, um, uh, to the Anglo-Boer War where it took on it, yes. you know, the equivalent of the world power and, and nearly – nearly got them to, to call a truce if it weren't for some heinous uh, uh, actions by the, uh, the, by, the British. by the British at the time. So, yes. so, you know, when you stop and think about that, it doesn't seem to be working into the political discourse. It's almost being discounted. 
You know, this is an interesting point you've made. Um, I, I've just finished, which I'm writing a, a review for, Peter Haynes' uh, book on, on Nelson Mandela, which, you know, it won't tell you anything you don't already know, but there is a part in that book which emphasizes Mandela's relationship with his warders at, uh, on Robben Island. And you read through, it's probably one of the, the most important features for us to remember about um, about his legacy is that, you know, he's the leadership and all of the Rainbow Nation. Yes, that's all fine and stuff. But I think that one of the most intelligent things that he ever did was form that relationship with his warders where he basically humanized them. And ultimately, the relationship ended up benefiting him and his fellow prisoners um, uh, immeasurably. And you, you look at the identity politics that are played by the radical elements in South Africa and by the EFF, by the, uh, and we know that identity politics just result in division and no one gets what they like. But there is an example of what Mandela did and this extraordinary relationship, this profound strategy he employed. And look what it produced. Now, is that not the way to think about these hostile things? Is that not the way to go about them? Because there is a living example, there is a breathing example of the outcome. Whereas with this other stuff, it, it just results in, in more division, doesn't it? Yeah, another Syria. In fact, many times uh, in engaging with people who are involved in the whole Syrian crisis, they look to South Africans and suggest that the country had a statesman who enabled it to surpass a similar kind of um, civil war type scenario. It's not something that that is taken terribly seriously in South Africa right now, I guess, because the majority of the population are law-abiding, they're just interested in, uh, in in getting their kids through school, having a better life, etc. But it is something that one needs to caution against. Absolutely. And, you know, whether or not the uh, Human Rights Commission starts, uh, you know, growing a pay, and going after people who 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 who, who violate um, the code of conduct, um, you know that'll be helpful. Uh, but at the moment, it looks like they're toothless. Uh, it looks like all the organisations that are involved in in promoting harmonious relationships don't have the the strength that the radicals do. Perhaps that's just because we have an election coming up, and everybody, including or particularly the ANC, wants all the votes they can get. Yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting to to see. You know, I have been a, an opponent of um, of ANC economic policy, um, and I, I'm still an opponent of ANC economic policy because, uh, and, and allied to that is the land reform, which I am certainly no fan of. But I have to say that you know they've actually gone about it to date um, in in the most respectable way that you you probably can about something like this, um, and. You know, we wait to see what what that effect uh, has, but uh, I'm, you know, it could have been a whole lot worse. The the people have had a chance to air their grievances, and you know, Alec, quite frankly, maybe that being in a in a position where you can express your um, historical revulsion and your um, dispossession uh, has helped in in some sort of a healing process. And whether or not anything comes from that and how it comes from that, I know that there are new schedules for what land can be expropriated, what kind of land rather can be expropriated. But 
you know, it, it remains to be seen. SLR's political lens. We're talking with Simon Lincoln Reader, and we'll be doing this on a regular basis as we go through the uh, interesting 2019, looking at our major markets in the United States, uh, the UK, and in South Africa.